for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. You know, there's this thought, and I don't know how it really ties into what we've been talking about or, or where we've started today or, or where I'm hoping to end, but I just can't shake this idea um, that, you know, in, that in, in my life, uh, in, in church, which has been most of my, most of my life, um, there has been a, uh, the, the understanding of devotion is, uh, is, is something like this. I will walk with you because I agree with you, right? We were, those of us that were raised in denominationalism, that's sort of the underlying doctrine, right? It's, it's the idea that we actually go to this church because we agree with their theology. Uh, you know, we're Baptists because we, we agree with Baptist theology or we're Assemblies of God because we agree with the, the AG theology. You know, we, um, we will walk with people if we agree with them. We'll walk with them because we agree with them. And, and most of us, that's sort of how we were raised to approach kingdom family. And uh, what I've been realizing lately is I've, I've been around some some men that God has brought really close to me, some guys that I know I'm going to walk with no matter what in, in life. Um, you know, I've realized that, that maybe I had that backwards, that maybe I, my, the posture of my heart shouldn't have been I'll walk with you because I agree with you, but rather I'll agree with you because I walk with you. Right? That, I, that I'm, I'm going to believe what you say is true because I know that God's called me into devotional relationship with you. God's called me into covenant relationship with you. And so um, I, what, I, what I'm seeing in this house is that we're discovering what um, kingdom relationship, I think, was supposed to be all along. And it's been, through the years, man, it's been twisted and it's been diminished and it's been cheapened uh, and, and uh, in, in many ways trivialized. But I think we are rediscovering the sacredness of family and, uh, and, I, and, and I hope stewarding it in a way that will, will honor God uh, and put a smile on his face. And so um, thank you for walking with me, even in the times that you don't agree with me. Now, those of you that walk with me because you agree with me, it's crazy. I can't believe that you, I'm doing my, I, I, it, someday I'll find a message that offends you good enough that that'll be the end of our time together. And just know it's been fun while it lasted. God bless you. <laughs> but those of you that agree with me because you walk with me, those of you that, that say, you know what, we're going to choose to trust even when we don't understand, um, that, that means more to me than I can possibly begin to articulate to you. And so thank you for being here. Thank you for staying, those of you that have stayed through offense and through confusion and through boredom, and, you know, all the other things that are inevitable when you're a part of a family. Thank you for staying uh, and for making this beautiful house uh, what it is, because it wouldn't be what it is without you. So I love you, and see you next week, I guess. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I uh, uh, have got so much ground to cover, and um, I'm gonna get the I'm gonna get the wrap it up eyes from my wife. She used to give me a different kind of eyes when we were first married, but now she gives me the. <laughs> But now, but now she gives me the hurry up, we gotta get to lunch. I've been fasting for a week. How many of you have fasted this week? Bless your hearts, you guys. Uh, 
Uh, I'll bet you're really excited about this lunch, so I'm going to make sure I preach for a real long time today. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm preaching. We're going to be talking about feasts, so it's going to be great for you. I, I, here's the thing. I had, I had some ideas for months. I had ideas about what I was going to preach at the beginning of the new year, and, uh, and, and then we got here, and God said, I have better ideas. So today I'm going to teach out of the book of Esther. Can we do that? Esther is one of, it's good. Yeah, come on. It's a great story. And listen, I have, there's a, a great movie about Esther uh, called One Night with the King that uh, we own at our house. We are thankful. My, my wife used to play Esther in a, in a skit. When I married her, she was on leadership at a ministry. She played Esther in a skit, you know, she wore a little sackcloth dress or something and it just came out and looked pretty. I guess that's kind of all that Esther, yeah. <laughs> Esther is the only book of the Bible that does not mention God once. Isn't that interesting? Esther is the only book of the Bible, never mentions God at all. And, uh, and, and honestly, I, I knew the story of Esther and I thought, man, that's great. You know, the way that God saved his people. Man, what an amazing story about God's sovereignty and his willingness to position people where they need to be, to be effective, to advance his purposes. But just in this last week of my life, uh, the Spirit of God has been opening my heart to, to see this book, to see this story in a new light. He's been drawing some revelation out that I had never seen before, and my hope is to help show it to you this morning through, um, through God's eyes, all right? Um, and so let's uh, pray. Uh, Father, I need your help. God, I ask you to lead, uh, lead me to guard my tongue, to, to bring your word to life uh, this morning in us, Lord. We pray that, that we wouldn't just leave here more well-informed today, but that we'd leave here transformed for your glory and into the image of your son, Lord. Um, we, we commit this time to you. We, uh, we submit our hearts to all that you have to say to us, and we ask you to reveal yourself to us, uh, reveal your truth to us, and, Transform us, God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in the book of Esther. Now, here's the problem with the book of Esther. It's 10 chapters long, and I feel like unless you understand all of it, uh, I'm not gonna be able to make the two points that I really wanna make today. And so what I'm gonna do is, God bless you if you're up there in the, the bat cave or whatever we're calling that. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but we're going to fly through the book of Esther. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to jump around. I've just been like furiously underlining all the passages of Esther that I couldn't skip over because they're critical to the story. And it's like three quarters of the entire book. So, um, <laughs> so uh, Esther 1.1. <laughs> now, it came to pass in the days of uh, Ahasuerus, now, that uh, is also an, another name for, it's King Xerxes, who's maybe more familiar because of that movie 300. So that's the guy that we're picturing in our mind here. Uh, uh, Ahasuerus, who, who reigned over uh, uh, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. That's a lot. In those days, King, King Ahasuerus uh, sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in uh, Shushan, the, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, uh, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent 
majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So he spends six months having this feast. People, uh, rulers and noblemen from all over this massive, almost global kingdom, they come together uh, to celebrate Xerxes, Ahasuerus, and, and to acknowledge all that he uh, has built, the great wealth and the, uh, the majesty, the splendor of his kingdom. He's just demonstrating all that he's accomplished and all that he's acquired. Everybody's come together. And then um, at one point during this feast, he has this idea. He says, you know what's more beautiful? I, I can relate to this. You know what's more beautiful than all of my wealth uh, and the splendor of my possessions? My wife. And so he sends for his wife, uh, Queen Vashti. And he says, she's, she's having her own feast that's separate from this one, but he says, bring her over here. In, in verse 12 of Esther chapter one, it says, um, uh, sorry, in, in verse 10 uh, of Esther chapter one, it says, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizta, Harbona, Bigtha, God help me, um, <laughs> Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the, at, at the king's command uh, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. And so this is the, the context here, is that this king is spending six months celebrating himself and his successes his, his prosperity, his, his great wealth, his majesty and splendor. For six months, people have come to him or are supposed to come to him and, and just, just indulge, right? And, and during this time, he sends for his, his wife and he wants to display her beauty before the people and she refuses, as wives do. And, uh, and she probably had a headache. And so, queen, <laughs> God help the queen. Queen Vashti refused to come by the king's command, brought by his eunuchs, and the king was furious. Here's the thing about kings, is that even a king can be insecure. And so this king, in his insecurity, he's furious. He's upset. He's embarrassed by this. His anger burns within him. And so he calls together his wise men. And can I give you guys a tip? Um, don't ask your friends for marriage advice. So he calls together his friends. He calls together his friends and asks them what he should do about the fact that his wife refused to come when he, when he called her. And verse 15, it says, what shall we do with Queen Vashti according to the law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her uh, by the eunuchs? And, and so, uh, and so they, they say this, and, and Memukin uh, answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the, king, for the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report uh, that the king commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. Now, this is, of course, ridiculous, but men get together and they do what they do and they think it's gonna be a, a big problem. And so the king has to deal with this very severely. And so what he does is he signs a royal edict declaring that his wife, Vashti, has to be exiled from his kingdom. She's no longer allowed. And she can never come back ever again, no matter what. And so when he signs this edict, when he puts his seal on this decree, it becomes law. It becomes a law that's unbreakable forever. And so Vashti uh, leaves the kingdom. She's banished, exiled for the rest of her life. And, she, um, and he uh, 
very quickly comes to his senses and realizes that that was a mistake. Now he's alone and he's discouraged about this. And so he begins to ask some of his people, well, what should we do? And he comes up with this, uh, uh, he come, they, they come up with this idea that they're going to, in, in chapter two, it says, um, uh, we'll start in verse one of Esther chapter two. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, uh, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let uh, beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young, women, uh, the young woman who pleases the king uh, become queen, queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and so he did so. And so he sends out this edict all throughout his empire, and he says, bring the most beautiful young women to me, and, and we're going to prepare them to come before me. And so uh, in Shushan, the, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. He was the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem uh, with the captives who had been captured with uh, Jeconiah, the son of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. So this is his cousin, Hadassah, because she had neither father nor mother. And so she has this cousin named Mordecai that works in the palace. And, uh, and, and as all of these girls are being gathered together to see who's going to be the queen to replace Vashti, uh, uh, Hadassah is, is among them. Esther is among them. And so she comes together. It says um, in verse 7, it says, the young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So as it was, the king. Uh, so it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, uh, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now, it goes on to say that every day, um, Mordecai, despite the fact that he charged her not to reveal that she was a Jew, every day it said that he would pace in front of the door, uh, the, the court of the women's quarters to learn, that Esther, to learn about Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So Mordecai is looking after her. He works, there it is. So he, he works in the, um, in the temple there and, or in the, the uh, palace uh, there. And, and when um, Esther is brought into the palace, along with all of these other girls, presumably hundreds or maybe thousands of other girls, uh, he is continually watching over her, continuing to, to look after her, continuing to pray for and support her and making sure that there's a voice uh, in her ear to remind her who she is. And then it says uh, that each woman's turn, in, in verse 12, each, woman's, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus uh, after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. So for an entire year, these women prepare themselves to be presented to the king. And I think that the, the, the incredible thing about the cross is that it's made a way for us to come boldly before the throne. Uh, and, and, and yet one of the unfortunate side effects for the modern church is that we've thought that just because we can freely come before the throne means that we should come before the throne freely. I wanna make sure that you hear what I'm saying. Just because we can freely come before the throne means that we have to come before the throne freely. The truth is, 
that, that because the blood of Christ made a way for us to come before the throne, it doesn't make the throne any less sacred. Right? It doesn't make the king any less worthy of our very best. And so as you see these women for an entire year preparing themselves to present themselves or to, to be presented before the king, I, I think that that should, that should plant a seed in us about like what, what kind of heart posture should I have? What should it look like for me to bring my very best before the king? It's easy. Listen, it's, it's easy for us. We can come. You can come as you are before the Lord. You really can. That's the beauty of the cross. But we still, I think, ought to be asking ourselves, how can I better honor the king? Because he may accept me however I come, but the truth is that he's worthy of my very best, right? And so for a year, these girls, they prepare themselves and they beautify themselves. They work to soften their skin and they, you know, they, they make their hair beautiful and they cover themselves in perfume and they're, they're ready. And it says in, in verse 17 of Esther 2, it says, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and he made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the, the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and he gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. And uh, now at this point, it goes on and it, it, it explains that at this point, Esther had not yet revealed that she was a, a, a Hebrew. He just thought she was a beautiful woman. He didn't know where she came from or, or what her uh, family heritage was. But in verse 21, it says that at the same time, that is in those days, it says, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, uh, Bigthan and, and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. That's, it's not laying hands like the way charismatics do it. They were planning to kill him. That was the... <laughs> The plan was to kill him. And, and so the, the, matter, the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both of them were hanged on gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai, that is the, the cousin of Esther, her family member who really was more like a father. He's the one that raised her because her father and mother had passed away. He's He's her cousin, but he's the one that raised her. He's looking after her. And because he hears of this plot to kill the king and he informs Esther, the king's life is saved because of this. And then it says in verse three, uh, sorry, chapter three, verse one, it says, after things, these things, King Ahasuerus uh, promoted uh, Haman. Haman's the bad guy. Uh, the king Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son, the son of Hamadatha, uh, the Agatha, uh, the Agagite, and advanced him and set him, uh, uh, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So, uh, at the same time as Mordecai is saving the life of the king, Esther's becoming queen. Um, this man Haman comes into power. He he gets set above all the other authorities, every other authority in the land except for the king himself. Haman takes his place of great authority, and. Uh, and when he would come through the palace, everybody would uh, bow in front of Haman. But um, it says in verse 2, it says, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage to Haman. And then in verse 3 of, of Esther 3, it says, Then the king's servants who were with the king within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them and they uh, that 
sorry, that he would not listen to them, that they had told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So Haman is so offended by the fact that Mordecai refuses to bow that he decides, I'm not just going to destroy Mordecai. I'm going to wipe his entire lineage, his entire people off the face of the earth. Now, um, can I tell you, uh, we, in, in our day, we are really consistently implored to to bow and pay homage to false authorities. Um, they may not be named uh, Haman. You know, maybe they're, they're named Mammon. Maybe we're supposed to worship money. Maybe they're named Facebook. Right, we're, we're constantly, maybe they're named Fauci, Right. <laughs> And, and can I tell you, and this is, this is what you find as societies develop is that uh, the collective whole of a society will uh, introduce and consider and sometimes adopt or sometimes reject new virtues. It's like um, things, things like uh, uh, physical uh, aggression and uh, and, and the, the prowess necessary to win in a physical altercation, they were, those were really important during like feudal or tribal times. A man's ability to literally fight away people that were trying to steal his wife or his kids, like invaders that were coming into his village. Like that was a really important thing. Now it's not quite as important to be physically capable of fighting away invaders, right? Things like communication, uh, teamwork, generosity. These are our values that we as a society are... Uh, tend to esteem more than the physical ability to be violent should the occasion arise. And, uh, and so as, as societies develop, you find that values get, new values get integrated. And what's happening right now in our society is that we are collectively considering whether or not compliance should be a, a value that we all, that we all esteem highly or, or that we hold in high regard. And, uh, all throughout 2020, we were just told, just do what we tell you. That's virtuous. And if you don't do what we tell you, you're dangerous and you don't really deserve a place in society. Did you guys see anything like this on Facebook? Yeah. You hear anything like this on CNN? This was, this was sort of the, the, the mantra. This is what was being proclaimed to our generation, that, that if you're not compliant, you're dangerous to society. And so we should all be very skeptical of you. It turns out everyone who wasn't compliant was right, but that's a conversation. That's a conversation for another time. <laughs> that's a conversation for another time, but here's, here's the point that I want to make. Uh, do what's right, not what's popular. Do what's right, not what is commanded of you. You have, listen, I, I understand that we're told our whole lives by our parents to just do what we're told and be a good boy and obey, right? And sit down and shut up. But 
But if we're going to be people of the kingdom, we have to hold the values of the kingdom, no matter what the culture around us tries to dictate, right? We have to hold God's standard for our life and for our family, no matter what the world says we should value. And so, and so that may mean that there, there may be a day that comes when Haman walks by and I don't bow like everybody else. Right? It doesn't mean that we're being belligerent or rebellious. It doesn't mean that we're insulting the, the, the powers of, uh, that, that God has, has placed in authority over us or the authorities of our, of our land. What it means is that we're holding the standard of the kingdom. And this is what we see in Mordecai. It's not that he's being belligerent and rebellious. It's that he's saying, I just, there's only one that I'll bow to. I will bow to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And so Haman comes by and Mordecai refuses to bow. And it, 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 it makes Haman furious. He's upset about it. And so his plan is, is not only am I at war with Mordecai, I'm at war with Mordecai's entire family. We're going to wipe uh, all of his descendants off the face of the earth. And it says this in verse eight, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus that uh, there's, there is a, a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other peoples and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it to the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of uh, Hamadatha, uh, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And so with this, with this act, the, uh, the release of the king's signet ring to say, make it official, uh, a decree goes out to say that on a certain day, verse 13, it says, letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. So on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew, their wife, their children, their homes were to be destroyed and utterly annihilated and all of their possessions to be plundered on that day. Haman had succeeded in signing into law a, a death decree over God's people. And I want you to know that before that day came, before the day that Haman successfully deceived the king into issuing a decree for the death of all of God's people, I want you to know that before that moment, God had already put a plan in place. Before that moment, before the decree was ever signed, before the decree was ever proposed, God had a plan in place. Esther had already been put in, a, in the authority necessary to be able to subvert this, uh, this, this curse of, of death and annihilation over God's people. And I think sometimes when we get into a situation that is scary or intimidating for us, we feel like we're uh, outnumbered or outmatched. And we're just, we're really worried that like uh, about where provision is gonna come from we've got to recognize that provision has already been released. Like God wasn't surprised by your crisis. Can I tell you, let that be the prophetic word to you today. God wasn't surprised by your crisis. That when you, when, when the divorce papers got put in your hand, right? When you, when the doctor called you into the, the office and he gave you this scary prognosis that 
Whatever the crisis is, I want you to know God wasn't surprised by it. And before you knew about it, he was already working for your deliverance. He was already working for your breakthrough. He was already working for your miracle. And so I want you to know that God is not surprised. He's not surprised by your crisis and he's not surprised by the crisis that the Hebrew people in Esther's day discovered either. And so uh, moving on to to chapter four, it says um, that Mordecai learns about what's happening and he and all the other Jews, they begin to, to mourn and they tear their clothes and they put ashes on their heads and they, war- they, they begin to mourn and weep and wail, cry out about this decree that has been signed by the king and, and, and has been established as law uh, and, and has signed their fate. And so um, Esther sees Mordecai or hears about Mordecai mourning and she asks him what's going on. And it says that he, in verse eight of Esther chapter four, it says that he gave, um, he, he gave a copy to one of Esther's servants, Mordecai gave a, a copy of the decree to one of Esther's servants uh, for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication for him and to plead before him for her people. And so Mordecai says, Esther, you're the, the queen of this, of this great empire. You're our only hope. You have to go in before the king and you have to intercede for us. You, you have to plead with the king to change his mind or to revoke this decree or to, to do something to save us. Otherwise, we're all going to be annihilated. And Esther in verse 10 spoke to uh, Hathok and gave him a command uh, for Mordecai. She said in verse 11, she said, all the king's servants and the people of my king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days, for for the last 30 days. So what she says to Mordecai is, if I walk into the king's chambers, the law says that I will immediately die. If I approach the king, no matter who I am, even if I'm the queen, if I approach the king uninvited, it it is death for me. And so Mordecai says this, and I want to maybe spend some time here. Mordecai in verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And now, There's two points that I I feel like I have to pause and and make out of this passage. Mordecai says, if you remain completely silent at this time, we're all going to die. That's not what he says. right? Mordecai says, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai understood that it's it's not God's people that are at stake here. It's your destiny. Right? This is why... This is what I had in mind today when I was taking the offering. It's like, uh, God's gonna, listen, one way or the other, relief and deliverance are gonna come for God's people. God's gonna bless the people he's gonna bless. The question is not if God's gonna bless me, he's gonna bless me. The, 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 the question is, is he gonna use you to do it, right? And, and so this is, this is, I think, something we have to, to recognize, that God is going to have his glory, God is going to have his glory. The question for us 
is not whether or not our life is going to be used for God's glory. The question for us is whether God will be glorified in our lives like he was in John's or like he was in Judas's, right? God will be glorified through your life one way or another, but it makes a difference to you whether it's like John or like Judas, amen, right? And God, shoot, it makes a difference. Let's, let's talk about this story. God's gonna be glorified in your life in one way or another, but it makes a difference to you whether it's like Mordecai or like Haman, right? Listen, and I'll show you later in the story that God is glorified and his kingdom advanced because of what happens here, because of the decree that Haman manipulated the king into signing. I think that there's, like, Haman set up a plan to advance God's glory and to further establish his kingdom. And and, and honestly, praise God for it. But uh, when we are looking at the world around us, I think it's so easy for us to think, oh man, I, I, don't, I don't know that I have what it takes to be used by God. I mean, who am I to lay my hands on the sick and see them recover? I mean, I, I don't know the first thing about raising kids, let alone kids that love Jesus. I, I mean, how can I, this church, you know, is full of passionate people who just, they've been in church for a lot longer than me and they, they know a lot more about worship or about scripture than I do. And I, I just feel like I don't have anything to offer. But friend, I, I want you to recognize that God is going to bring relief and deliverance to people's lives one way or another. God is going to bring relief and deliverance. Let me, let me say it like this. God is going to bring relief and deliverance to Elizabethan, Tennessee, to Johnson City, Tennessee, to Washington County and Carter County. God is going to, to bring relief and deliverance to these lands. The question is, is he going to use you to do it? God is going to have his glory in this land. The question is, are, are, are we going to be the ones through whom he reveals it? I want to say yes. As far as it depends on me, the answer is a resounding yes. And Mordecai knew this, that God is going to bring relief to us. Mordecai was mourning and still full of faith. He knew God is faithful. This won't be the end of us. He says, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. He says, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And now this is uh, maybe the most popular verse in all of the book of Esther. This is the, the idea that so many of us um, have maybe heard taught or, or we've considered or contemplated in the past that Mordecai challenges Esther and he says, maybe you came to the palace for this reason. Maybe this is the reason God brought you where you are. And it's so easy for us, I think, to, to feel like, you know, I, I can't be used by God because I'm, I'm not a pastor or a missionary. I'm not a worship leader or a Christian author. You know, I, I, I don't... I don't have a platform to be used by God, but Esther wasn't a preacher. She wasn't a worship leader. Esther had a position and, and Mordecai said, I want you to look at the position that you hold and recognize that just because you, you are who you are and you are where you are, uh, where you are, God can use you. And I think th this has got to be a revelation that we gain as well. That if I am who I am and I am where I am, then it must be because God intends to work in that place. How do I know that God intends to pour out revival in Johnson City, Tennessee? Because I'm here. I don't need any more confirmation than that. I don't need an angel with a flaming sword or a burning bush moment. 
God would not have sent me and my family here if he didn't intend to pour out revival in this place, right? Because I know that God brought us here for such a time as this. Why is it that God has put you in your industry? Why is it that God has put you in, in, in the office that you work in? Why is it that God has given you the talents and the opportunities that he's, he's given you? Why did God give you the boss that you have or the coworkers that you have? Maybe God brought you into that place for such a time as this. Because there's an, an, an ache, a cry in the deepest places of the heart of the people that, that you sit next to, that you interact with every day for something more. And they're turning over every rock, looking for something to hang on to, something real that they can build their life on. And maybe God brought you into their life for such a time as this because you are the answer to the, the secret prayer that they've been praying and nobody else knows about. They've been crying, God, if you're real, show me a sign. And God sent you as that sign. And so Mordecai presents Esther with this thought. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What a beautiful idea. And this sparks faith in Esther. And so Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. And she says this in verse 16 of Esther chapter four. She says, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai's challenge, it awakens faith in Esther. And she says, get all of the Jews together in the entire city. Thousands of, of people. I want you to gather them all together. And I want you to pray for me, fast for me, support me in this. Because I'm about to take a step of radical faith. And it could cost me my life. And so they get together and they pray and fast. And, and in chapter five, we're going to chapter five now. We're moving, we're halfway done. Uh, it says, now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was in verse two, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Now, this is, it's easy to just read this as the next step in the story. But I think we have to take the time to consider what Esther risked by walking into the king's court. I mean, she risked her life and the life of everyone she'd ever known or loved. Her family, her friends. She risked the end of of her entire nation of people. Can you imagine picking out what you're gonna wear to walk into that moment, right? The pressure. You think it's hard to choose something to wear to come to church, ladies. It's like, imagine trying to figure out what you're gonna wear in this moment, you know? And she, she, uh, she puts on, I'm sure, her best outfit, you know? and Sprays perfume and makeup and everything else. And she, she walks into the king's course. I'm sure her, Legs were trembling. And, uh, and the king sees her and his, his heart is full of love for her and he extends the scepter. And she's welcomed, she's accepted. She found favor in his sight. And so she, she comes before him and she, she touches the top of the, the scepter. So the king asks her, he, he says to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half of my kingdom. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I've prepared for them. So, hear me. The king 
saw Esther approaching and he, he beckoned her to come near and she came near and he said, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. I'll give you anything you want. And she said, I just want to eat with you. I just want to, I just want to sit down at a table and, and just eat a meal with you. Now, this touches the king's heart. I, th- I think there's some wisdom, there's some strategy to this. Because Esther, what Esther could have done, if she was anything like me, she would have said, well, since you asked, if you could not kill me and my whole family, that would be really cool. The book would have been a lot shorter. But she doesn't. She says, I, I just want to eat with you. If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I've prepared for them. And the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, uh, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. The king knows. She made a meal for me. She must really want something, right? That's just, he's, <laughs> the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said this, my petition and request is this. Verse eight, if I've found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king said. I wanna have another meal with you. Just if, listen, if, if you love me, if I've found favor in your sight, if you value me at all, uh, we're, as we're eating this meal, as we're sitting down for this feast together, I, I love it, I'm thankful for it. And if you'll do anything that I want, what I want more than anything is to have another meal with you. He says, I'll give you anything you want. And he's got the resources and the power to make it happen. And she says, all I want more than anything is to eat another meal with you. I, I wanna have another feast with you tomorrow. And so, and so he says, uh, so, so he says, okay, the, the, the king obliges. In verse nine, it says, so Haman went out that day. Uh, I love this part. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. He thinks it's gonna go great for him. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not. <laughs> so Haman went, went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. And I love this about Mordecai, that Haman has literally signed a decree of death for Mordecai and everyone Mordecai loves, and and Mordecai still refuses to stand or tremble before Haman. That's my kind of guy. I like it, you know? I'm never gonna bow. There's nothing you can do to make me. It's so good. And so so Haman, he's, he's filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. He sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. And then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I'm again invited by her along with the king. I love this. This is, this is so, I love that this is all in the book. <laughs> He's so proud of himself. Moreover, Haman said, besides, uh, sorry, uh, verse 13, yet all this avails me nothing, he says, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Isn't it wild the way that everything can be going right with you 
and, uh, and one person isn't giving you the respect you think you deserve and it just ruins everything. <laughs> Selah. This avails me nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it and then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And this thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Now 50 cubits is 75 feet. That's seven and a half stories in the air. Have a gallows made very, very high and let's just hang Mordecai on it tomorrow morning and everything's gonna be fine. And, uh, and so he thinks that's a great idea Somebody go build me some giant gallows. We're gonna hang this guy on it tomorrow and then I'll be happy and, and we can go and, and eat with the queen and everything's gonna be fine. But it says this in, in chapter six, starting in verse one, it says, that night the king could not sleep. Uh, so, uh, so one was commanded to bring the book of records uh, of Chronicles and they were read before the king. So he's, he can't sleep, he's reading a book. I love that when he's a king, he doesn't even pick up the book or read it himself, you know? Someone go get me the book and then read it to me. Um, but that's, that's how it is, I guess, when you're the king. And, and it says they were read before the king, and it was found written that Mordecai had told uh, of, uh, of Big Thana and, and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, uh, that uh, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And then the king said, what honor and dignity uh, has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Mordecai saved your life ages ago, and nothing has been done for him. And so the next morning comes, and the king says, well, who is in the court this morning? Uh, in verse four, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he'd prepared for him. Haman's fired up. He's up bright and early. Time to go get this idiot Mordecai murdered, you know? And he's, he's excited. So he runs into the king's courts thinking, hey, can you please hang Mordecai? But the king's been up all night. He's been studying. He realized Mordecai has never been rewarded for having saved the king's life. And so the, the king's servant said to, to the king, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman, of course, thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? This is Haman for you. And uh, Haman answered the king, well, for the man the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. And then let the robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I love this. <laughs> so much. Because Haman's thinking... Everything's going great. This is going to be the best day of my life. <laughs> and then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you've spoken. God, isn't it, isn't it just like God to make your enemy honor you? Right? Isn't it just like God to take the enemy's attempt to destroy you and use it to honor you. Friends, this, this is one of the, the points that I really want to drive home today. We not only have to, 
We not only get the privilege of not having to fear our enemy, we can trust that our enemy's best efforts to destroy us, God is going to use those efforts to promote us. God is going to use those efforts to promote us. Friends, in, in, there have, in, in my life, there have been a handful of major attacks uh, levied against me and my ministry and my family. And what I have found is that every single time, God uses them to promote me. God, and, and here's, here's what I mean. It may not always make me more popular, more wealthy, but I, I mean, it, it makes me more Christ-like, right? That in, in the times that I've been under the most intense scrutiny and criticism and accusation, it's caused me to look at my own heart and ask, am I, am I full of pride? Is this, is this about me? Am I... Am I really being the kind of man that I know God's called me to be? Can I genuinely say with a pure heart that I'm right before God? And, and, and honestly, that's the greatest gift someone could give me. I'm so grateful for the times that I've been under intense criticism and accusation because it's caused me to, to take a hard look at my own heart and my own motivations and my own interior world and to come back to the place of simple devotion to Jesus. And so we've got to understand, friends, not only... Is the, is the enemy a non-issue for kingdom people? But his best efforts to derail God's plans in your life are only going to further serve to promote and prosper you in every way. Is that good news? We're not about weathering storms anymore. We're catching rainwater. <laughs> right, right? We're, we're recognizing that even the storms, like we're not just enduring the attack of the enemy. The attack of the enemy is pushing us further into God's plan for our life. Come on. And so the Lord uh, makes Haman honor, or sorry, the king makes Haman honor uh, Mordecai. Hurry, take the Roman horse, as you've suggested, and do to Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone and all that you have spoken, uh, of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on a horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I wish I could have seen Haman's face. You know, it was not a good morning for him, right? He's furious and uh, thought, of course, he was going to be the one getting honored. And it turns out that he's being called to honor Mordecai publicly. So Haman, he goes home and he tells his wife, uh, verse 13, Uh, it says, when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him, uh, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him this, and this is really interesting. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him. You will surely fall before him. They're, they're saying, listen, we've heard about the God of the Jews. And, and, and already he has stood up against you and already, things that were entirely out of Mordecai's control or Haman's control, things, things that could only have been God, are going Mordecai's way. And so we need to warn you, Haman, if you continue down this road, the God of Mordecai, the God of the Jews, is going to deal with you just like we heard he dealt with the Egyptians. Just like we heard he dealt with the Canaanites. We've heard about what God has done, and, um, and I don't... I don't know, Haman, if you want to continue down this path. He says, if, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him. 
but surely you will fall before him. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. And so he thinks, you know what? This thing with Mordecai is crazy, but the banquet's going to be great. I'm being honored. I get to go hang out with the queen again. Let's do it. And so he hurries off and he goes to this banquet. And, uh, and the king again asks Esther. He says, now we're in verse seven. He says, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you whatever uh, and what, what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, whatever you want, it shall be done for you. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although my enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. And so now, finally, after all these days, after planning and preparing, after praying and fasting, Esther is standing before the king, and I can only imagine that her voice is shaking and her palms are sweaty as she's asking this question. She finally with great humility, she presents her request. If it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. And uh, she says, I would gladly have held my tongue if we would have been sold as slaves, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And I'm sure Haman is thinking the same thing. Listen, we're going to figure out who did this to you, Esther. We're going to deal with him. And Esther said, verse 6 of Esther 7, the adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen, rightfully so. This day has gone not at all how he expected it to go. Everything's going bad. And can you imagine the king's eyes? This is his, his love. This woman has captured his heart saying, I I'm fighting for my life. And I'm asking you to please save me. And it's this man sitting next to you that is trying to kill me and my family. And the king turns to Haman. Says the king arose. In verse seven, the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Oh, he knew the king was going to kill him. And so he's pleading with Esther saying, tell him to have mercy on me. And when the king returned for the palace garden, I love that in an instant, Esther goes from pleading for Haman's mercy. She's, she's recognizing that she's at the mercy of, of Haman who has manipulated the situation for her death to Haman pleading for Esther's mercy. And so he's a, uh, He's pleading for his life in, in verse seven, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? It's going, it just keeps getting worse for Haman. As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbanah, one of the eunuchs said to the king, look, the gallows. Thank you. 
50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, standing at the house of Haman. And then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's wrath subsided. Friends, long before Haman was hanged, long before the decree was signed, long before the Jews were in danger, Mordecai was in the palace. And Esther was made queen. God saw it coming a mile away and had a plan in place before the crisis presented itself. He was not intimidated. He was not caught off guard. He was not unprepared or unequipped to deal with the curse of Haman. And uh, so what happens in verse eight, uh, uh, sorry, chapter eight, verse two, it says, the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. All of Haman's possessions were taken from Haman and given to Mordecai. They end up issuing a, another decree that saves the, the, the Jewish people from destruction. And uh, and as I've been meditating on this passage over these last few weeks, as I've been thinking about this story, uh, it sort of struck me that this is the only book of the Bible that never mentions God. There's a, there's a book of the Bible, the Bible, that does not mention God at all. And I think, God, why would you include this? I mean, I, I see that there's a, a story about the, you know, it's, it's the history of Israel, the salvation of God's people, but there's no, there's no prophetic voice. There's no, thus saith the Lord. God, it seems like you're not involved in this story at all. But I recognize that not only is God involved in the story, but the story is in many ways our story. The truth is that Yahweh will bring deliverance to his people. And this is the message of the book of Esther. Yahweh will bring deliverance to his people. And he will use in this day the same thing he used in Esther's day. And that is a bride who knows she is loved by the king. Friends, I believe that God is going is to bring deliverance to our generation on a scale the world has never seen before. And, and what is God going to use to do it? God's people needed to be delivered. Now, in Moses' day, God rose up a deliverer, a man that would, through, uh, through supernatural and military might, who would, who would bring that empire to its knees. But he didn't do that in Esther's day. He didn't send Moses. He didn't send plagues. He didn't just kill Haman and erase the, the curse that was against his people. No, he, he raised up someone, and he raised up someone intentional. Who did he raise up? He rose up a bride who was convinced that the king's heart was for her. And because the bride knew that the king's heart was for her, she then had the dominion to bring deliverance for all of God's people. And this is God's strategy in our day too, is to, to bring the revelation, as, as our, our friend Damon Thompson says, the revelation of beloved identity to the hearts of the bride of Christ to such a degree that, that instead of fearfully staying away from the king, we would approach him boldly 
And we would say, intervene on behalf of our people. And so I want you to, I want you to see yourself in Esther's story to recognize that that, 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 that that thing that made her hesitate when she said to Mordecai, if I go in there, he's gonna kill me. No man can see God and live. Who am I to approach the God of all creation? He's the king of the cosmos, and I'm just me? Oh, no, 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 he would never wanna hear from me. He wouldn't want anything to do with me. But what happens is that Mordecai challenges her, and it awakens her to, to the, the reality of the fact that the king loves her. She is always welcome. He's eager to bless her. And friend, I want to come, I want to tell you this morning that the king loves you. You are always welcome with him and he is eager to bless you. Did you hear that? The king loves you. You are always welcome with him and he is eager to bless you. The king loves you. You are always welcome with him and he is eager to bless you. The king loves you. You're always welcome with him and he's eager to bless you. And if you've ever heard different from an American pulpit, then woe to the person who said that. Friend, I I want you to know that the king loves you. You are always welcome with him and he's eager to bless you. This is what Esther struggled to believe. And when she finally, with fear and trembling, put this idea to the test, she found out that the king is for her. In every way, she'd captured his heart. His passion was was for her, that there was nothing he'd withhold from her, that that all of his authority, all of his resources were at her disposal, that he was in every way infatuated, lost in love with her. And because of the king's great love for his bride, that bride became the conduit for deliverance and salvation for countless people. And listen, I want to be the kind of church that God uses to bring deliverance and salvation to countless people. Is that right? I want us to be the kind of community that can be God's doorway through it, the doorway through which God pours out deliverance and salvation for countless people. I want that for our church, but I want you to know it's never going to come because we fight hard enough. It's going to come when we begin to believe that the king loves us when we begin to see ourselves as prepared and adorned in splendor and beauty, as the beloved of Yahweh to whom he's given free access to the holiest places of intimacy with him. And so the the story ends in, uh, begins to end in Esther chapter eight. It says, Mordecai went out from, in verse 15, it says, so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. Do you hear that? This is what I want Johnson City to experience. It says the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. Verse 17, and in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the joys had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. And then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon all of them. People joined the Jews. They said, we want to follow your God. We want to follow your ways. We want to learn what it means to be followers of Yahweh because, because we see that his goodness is on your lives. 
because we see that he is for you. And we know that if God is for you, then no one can be against you. And so friends, I, uh, I want you to understand that there has been very seriously a decree of death that's been released over our generation, our nation in particular. A decree, a, a, a mandate of annihilation over the United States of America, especially in, in our generation. And someone is going to have to intervene. And I know that you feel small and insignificant and unimportant, but maybe you were brought to this nation for such a time as this. And maybe it's not your military prowess. Maybe it's not your violence or your force. Maybe it's not your charisma or your fame or your expansive resources that are going to move the needle and bring deliverance to your people. Maybe it's the fact that you've captured the heart of the king. And a bride who knows that she is loved by the king can change history and save a nation by doing one thing. You want to know what it is? Intimacy. The king said, I'll give you anything you want. And what did she say? She didn't say, I want more power. I want you to fire Haman. He said, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? And she said, I want to eat a meal with you. And friends, this is the mechanism that God is using to bring deliverance to our nation in our generation. It is a bride who is convinced of her own status as beloved by the king who wants one thing from him, intimacy. A bride who will leverage intimacy with the king for the deliverance of her nation cannot be stopped. Not in Esther's time and not in ours. And so I give you permission. Maybe it's prophetic that we're ending a fast today. I give you permission to dine with the king. I give you permission to feast with the king, to come into a place of communion with the king and to know that it's actually in that place of communion that nations get changed and history gets reshaped for the glory of God. Amen. So Lord, we, we thank you, God, for the, the witness of the story of Esther, for the prophetic declaration that it, that it provokes in us to know that we are loved by you. God, teach us to trust that you are not, uh, that you're not aloof or distant, that you're not ashamed of us, that you're not uninterested, but that right now you are beckoning us to come closer, to come into intimacy. And that as we come into that intimacy, God, I, I pray that you would produce uh, through our lives a, a, a witness of your great love for us, God. Demonstrate your love for us in the way that you revive Johnson City. Demonstrate your love for us, God, in the way that you saved the United States of America. God, I pray that you would sovereignly intervene and, and halt this mandate of annihilation that has come against our generation. God, come and halt deception. Come and halt distraction. Come and right now make war against every false idol, against every other lover, God, against everything that has has tried to take the place of your will and, and, and your desire for our life. God, we take our place as, 
as your beloved bride. Pray, Father, that you would burn on our hearts the revelation that we are loved by you. And I pray, God, that from that revelation, that that each of us individually and that all of us collectively would, would come boldly before you in faith and in hope that you will be able to accomplish what we never could. God, we know that you brought us here for such a time as this. And we, with great expectation, look forward to seeing all that you are gonna do in our time. God, we bless you, we honor you, we surrender to you again today. And we say that if with the world at our fingertips, all we want is communion with you. That's all we want, God. We bless you, we honor you in Jesus' name, amen. Family, happy anniversary. You are, you are, a, you are a beloved bride, and I am so proud to, to serve um, this house. Thank you for being here today. Um, remember, Wednesday nights, uh, we're going to have service for kids, service for students, and service for adults all at the same time. So no excuses. We'll see you Wednesday at 6.30. God bless you. And uh, we love you so much. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you were impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the Altar as we work to establish the Kingdom of Heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.